1895, the state of Ohio had only two automobiles. And wouldn't you know it, they collided. <laughs> so, <laughs> who knows what kind of collision we're going to have in the days ahead. If you dare vote for a decree that God finds abominable and murderous, you will answer to him. God's curse is upon you. How dare you? How dare you? defy him. Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. When is the time for justice? The time is now. I'm tired of waiting for incremental solutions that never make any increments and never bring solutions. So when is the time for justice? It's now. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. If the court in a nation is the highest authority, then you've found a God. If the people are the highest authority, then you've found another God. If, if there's no transcendent law governing over this nation or any other nation, then you've found another God. It's never too early to learn that the government is a greedy piglet that suckles on a taxpayer's teat until they have sore, chapped nipples. Take the guns first, go through due process second. Please clap. Just as the church has an obligation to be Christian, just as the family has an obligation to be Christian, just so the school has an obligation to be Christian, and the state, and your calling, and the school, every area of life must recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. Welcome to Cross and Crown Radio, an unapologetically Christian reconstructionist talk show for your edification and enjoyment. Jesus is king. There is no neutrality. And guess what, guys? I don't know if you know this. There's no exile either. Cancel the exile. Cancel the exile. <laughs> Little hat tip to what we're going to talk about today. And lastly, no surrender. My name is Jason. I'm one of your hosts. I am with my friend Jordan and my other friend... John. I think, have more than two friends. Think boys are here. The Think, think boys. boys are in town. <laughs> think boys are here. We'll Thank let you, you know what that means a little later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little hat tip for later. Uh, man, thanks for, for, for tuning in with us, joining us on the radio show. We have been so blessed by many of you who have shared our episodes. So many of you have offered encouragement. It's just a blessing to Yeah, hear. a lot of good feedback from last week's episode about planning Christian civilization. It was so great to have Chris on and joining us and just to hear a little story about somebody who actually came and joined what we were uh, planning here in, in Warrington. So that was that was great to get good feedback yeah, on that. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, Chris, for filling in. Good guy. Thank you, Chris. Glad and John. John, I'm glad you're back, man. Oh, thanks, man. I'm glad you're to be feeling back. better. I am feeling better. John, we missed you, brother. Oh, I appreciate that. I miss you too, Jordan. Yeah, it's good to have you in the studio again. Well, we have an announcement that we want to uh, share with you today, but, well, we don't need to wait till the end. I mean, that would be rude. Unleash the Kraken. We don't want to wait till the very end to let or you know. Rele is it release the Kraken? I, I think it's think release. so, yeah. Okay. Don't ask me what Some movie. Some kind of <laughs> pagan mythology you're talking about? Yeah. Release it. Something like that. Release the Kraken. Well, hey, we, we want to share with you something really cool we're excited about. We have a gear store up and running with a, with a few items for you. You can go to crosscrownchurch.com slash store. Just click on the store tab. And there are some cool things there. I don't know if you guys got a chance to, to peruse a little bit. What do we got on there? We have a couple shirts, men's shirts, women's shirts, because there's only two genders. Hey and <laughs> uh, well, We have this really cool mug, too. Cross and Crown Radio mug. I, I want one of those mugs. Yeah, yeah, really cool mug. Are there onesies? There's a onesie actually on the store. <laughs> um, we have Cross and Crown Church stuff and Cross and Crown Radio stuff. So you can get both, get whatever swag you want. Um, but, but there's a really cool onesie there. It's really cute, frankly. And then we have a Cross and Crown. I don't think Crown. you'd fit in one. Yeah, yeah let me, <laughs> let's be clear. It's a baby onesie. <laughs> okay, I'm just making sure. <laughs> Not an adult onesie. 
we, we probably won't do that. No, we have a, a, um, a winter cap, if you will, which is really cool. It's a throwback. It's got the, uh, the pom-pom on the top. Oh. So it's a throwback. And a snapback, right? Yeah, and a snapback hat. Say that fast. Snapback hat. Snapback hat. I did it. Well, the cool thing about the store, though, is with the launch of the store, we want to give our listeners 10% off. So you can plug in a code. CC Store Launch is the code. CC Store Launch, all one word. You can go to the site, check out the gear, and uh, yeah, sip your coffee and... I don't know. You can just look at the logo. While and you're listening to Cross the Crown Radio, yeah. you can be drinking for your mirror yeah. Cross Crown Radio mug. It, it makes the listening experience that much better. <laughs> absolutely. I think. And thanks for the support, everyone. Yeah. Just absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So we we <laughs> we want to talk about exile theology, but we have sort of late, you know, coming news, breaking news, if you will. Straight out of California. We, we do, and I don't know, but uh, this past week is Shepherd's Conference Week. This is the conference that's going on in uh, John MacArthur's church in California. And uh, he has a lot of the pastors uh, from sort of the, the Together for the Gospel board out there. So um, you've got guys like uh, Mark Dever and uh, uh, Lincoln Duncan, Al Moeller. Moeller did uh, show up. Sinclair Ferguson, I believe. Um, yeah, so there's, yeah, so yes, uh, Al Moeller did show up. As, I didn't I think they were going to let him Lincoln in. Duncan after they did not sign the statement on social justice, the Dallas statement, which was uh, sort of interesting. So huh. just, just to uh, bring everyone up to speed who may not be uh, up to speed on this, uh, there was a statement that was written months back, uh, I don't know, seven, eight months back, that was a statement on social justice, and it was put forward by John MacArthur and Phil Johnson and and, and uh, uh, quite a few other pastors in some, in some Baptist circles. Um, and then it was signed on by, you know, however many people. Well, this statement was not uniformly uh, appreciated in even the Reformed community. So uh, it, it was signed by some and not signed by others. And and many folks gave different reasons for why they would or, or wouldn't sign it. But essentially, from our point of view, the statement was reductionistic in its description of the com- fundamental necessary components of the gospel right, uh, right. and the kingdom and the Great Commission. And so, uh, you know, we had talked about this before. We, we could not sign the statement. And... Um, so basically what's happened since then is, uh, they've now got together, they've had this conference, they've invited their old friends, these pastors back, and now they're asking, you know, what's the deal? You know, <laughs> why didn't you sign it? And, uh, so in this discussion, it was really interesting. There was a Q and A that they had, and it was really awkward because, you know, Phil Johnson was asking these questions of these pastors, basically, you know, why, why, why didn't you sign it? And there wasn't really any clear answer. Mm. Um, it, it just seemed the discussion didn't have a whole lot to offer to, for me, it didn't clear anything up at all. Um, did I didn't yeah. see it yet. You watched it, but I did. I didn't see it. Did was, I saw something on Twitter floating around. It's, did, yeah. was it basically somebody at some point said, we don't have time to discuss this right now. Did that come up? Um, kind of. Yeah. It like, like, so Phil Johnson, clearly he wanted to get out of it. All right. Tell me the point in the statement that you disagreed with it so I can clarify it for you so that, that now you'll, you'll sign it or something like that's what his uh, hopes uh, and dreams, uh, my word. you know, and obviously, Salesman. he you know, he didn't say that, you know, explicitly, but you could just tell he was trying to find out what point of the statement they disagreed with so he could know, you know, why they didn't sign it for him. He's, I think, sort of puzzled. Mm-hmm. And um, the the answers that were given were not real clear about why they didn't sign it. They sort of sort of gave the impression that um, although they agreed with a, a wide swath of it, that's not maybe the way that they would have articulated it, or they don't want to just sign on to a statement. They want to address this discussion in a in a different fashion. So mm-hmm. in any right, yeah. uh, you know, even like what we talked about with the statement. Any statement written by reformed individuals are is mostly going to be good, right? But it's that stuff in it that's not good that right. could ruin it all. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not as if by not signing it, we're denying everything they say because they articulate essentially basic Christianity throughout maybe 90, 95 percent of it. But it's that five mm-hmm. percent, 
Yeah, it, it, exactly. And the other thing that came out of this was that there's not only two camps in this discussion. So in this on, on the platform, they had basically the two camps, but there are several other camps and several other perspectives that were not in this. And the even more unhelpful thing is it seems like like Phil Johnson, he thinks it's either his um, anti-social justice warrior side or um, or the other social justice warrior sort of anti-Christian side. Like there's there's only two options, you know, either you're a rabid social justice warrior who's been compromised or you're, you stand for the Bible. Yeah. You know, Marxists is not, it's just us versus them. They, they have to be Marxists. Right. And, and that's, that is sort of the feel I had from it. But so what I wanted to add to the discussion is let's be um, more deliberate, more thoughtful as we approach this discussion. So who, what are the different perspectives that you have? Right. So first let's, let's admit, and let's, let's be very upfront about there is a group of social justice Marxists. There are people, some in the church, some outside the church, but for our, our circles, we're talking about what has come into the church, who in Christian terms are trying to advance a Marxist agenda into the church. They're trying to call it a Christian thing. They're saying, oh, love your neighbor, but um, really it's it's love your neighbor by socialism, theft. by implementing theft. Steal their property, right? yeah, welfare programs, and so then, on and so forth. Yes. Right. And then they tie it to as an imperative of the gospel. So they really mess it up. Mm-hmm. And so that is that needs to be directly opposed, right? So that's one camp. The second camp, I think this would be the camp that we would more fall into. And this would be the camp of the social justice theonomists. Now, if you're not a capital T theonomist and you're not buying into yet all of the, you know, tenets of, of big capital T theonomy, but you still believe that society should be governed by God's laws, his transcendent laws in scripture. Um, this would be you too, okay? So, yeah. In, the, in this group, you hold to a big gospel. So it's both the atonement and the kingdom aspects of the gospel. Uh, you hold to a, a big great commission. So you, all of life is going to be redeemed by the great commission uh, as a result of the the gospel going forward. Not just someone's personal private life, but it should affect every area of life. And you want justice in society to be explicitly explicitly based on God's law. It's distinctly anti-socialistic, and it recognizes that the implementation of justice in this temporal realm now is at the very least part of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And so, you know, we want social justice too, except we define justice in society according to God's law. Absolutely. And, and there are some of us who tactically, you differ on wanting to use the term social justice or not. You're still in this camp. I would put you still in this camp. We may have a difference of, of tactics, okay, right. on using that term social justice. Right, because people would say there's too much baggage with it and so on and so forth. This really reminds me of something that uh, Greg Bonson actually said, and this was years ago, and sometimes the argument could be made that this was before the whole social justice movement, so so on and so forth, so we can't really take him as like a social justice theonomist. But he said, God will not wait to the last day before seeing to it that justice is maintained in human society. He has commissioned magistrates to maintain social justice mm-hmm. by expressing the wrath of God against public evil. That's what we believe. That's what I believe. Yep. Right, right. there with you. All right. Group three, the anti-social justice warrior theonomist reactionaries. So these are people who are the exact same as what I just described in group two. But they routinely lump in anyone who affirms that the first group has some things right in terms of their identification of the right problem. So sometimes the the Marxist social justice warriors do identify uh, injustices in society. And just because we agree, yes, we agree with you, that is a social injustice in society, that doesn't mean that you should automatically be lumped in. That means you're in their camp if you see the same problem. We have a different solution, right? Um, and we may not even agree on what all the problems are, but there's some overlap there, right? And so that would be this yeah. group. They lump folks in together. And if you, even if you use the term social justice in any kind of positive light, you're automatically into that first group. You're, you're a social justice warrior. And it's sort Condemnation of, by terminology? Yeah. It's just like a reactionary. They're triggered. There's a reactionary thing. And they're, they, they can't stand this evil so much that they're willing to sacrifice other things like their commitment to the big gospel their commitment to the Big Great Commission, if they have that, in order to sort of fight this bad guy. Almost seems like uh, caring more about what you're against as opposed to caring more for what you're for. Yes, exactly. And so those are the groups that were not represented in this discussion, and these perspectives were not basically talked about as if they even exist. So 
except for the first one. Which is so, a shame because if you know Dr. MacArthur would have called me, I or you, well, we could have gone. Right. That that would have been productive. Right. So I don't want to spend any more time <laughs> on this, but there's the two other groups were the groups represented by MacArthur and Phil Johnson, and the groups represented by the other folks in the panel. There's an article we'll link to in the show notes that describes those groups in more detail, but that's pretty much all I wanted to say about yeah. it. Yeah, it's important because we the conversation is not going to go away anytime soon, especially when there's clearly this political polarization in our culture. We have the, this us versus them. There's the Republican, there's the Democrat, there's conservative, there's a liberal. And it's easy. You have low-hanging fruit like Hillary Clinton, um, AOC. Right. And a lot of this is terrible. Like the, the, this new green deal, what was it like $40 trillion it's going to cost. And, and she went on an interview with Anderson Cooper and they can only account for two, two trillion. They, they have to figure out how to tax everyone to get the rest. And you just look at that and you think, man, that is stupid. Right. That is terrible. Right. So there, there are, we readily admit that there are social justice folks like AOC mm-hmm. who have a, they don't understand society. They don't understand basic principles of economics. They don't. And there's it, larceny in their hearts. Big time. Yeah, absolutely. 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 And you know, one last thing on this. This is an important issue. This is a very important issue. God cares a lot about justice. And so because of its importance, we should be very careful to not disparage nuance Right. To not uh, poo-poo being careful with your language. Right. We should be very careful to, to not be quick to speak and to not paint with a broad brush. Because the importance of this issue means that we should be more careful, not less careful. If anything is worth saying, it's worth saying well. Indeed. And just because yeah. it's an important issue doesn't mean you should be reckless or you know abandon all nuance to just throw in with the crowd that best resembles your position. Right. And I don't know if anybody knows much about boxing, but in boxing you've got a brawler and then you've got you've got brawlers and punchers and you've got boxers. And if you've got some brawler who knows nothing about boxing and he might be a strong guy or whatever, but he just goes in and starts flailing his arms and he's just a tornado of hitting and you know, a trained boxer knows how to just go around those and just boom, boom, jab, jab, hit, hit, step, you know, and that's what we're talking about. If we want to win the war, we've we've got to be like deliberate about what we're doing and not just like go in some room and start swinging and hope we hit some some good enemies <laughs> and maybe we'll hit some good guys, too. But yeah, it's all for the gospel anyway. Right. You know, yeah. Let's be deliberate. Let's be uh, charitable. Let's be um, careful. Um, but none of those things are are preventing us from also being decisive, courageous, bold, and shrewd in how we do, how we uh, fight. Absolutely, the enemy. absolutely. And one thing I really saw in the social justice statement was this exile theology of some of the writers. It seeped in mm-hmm. into it. You could actually see the pessimism. You can see the exile theology in the absolutely. statement on social justice, which is just another reason why I didn't want to support it. Yeah. Sounds like a transition. That's a beautiful segue, my <laughs> Thanks, friend. Man. I appreciate that was it. It's really good. Yeah. Exile theology, that's what we're calling calling what we're gonna talk about because there's this whole all that stuff. There's presupposition after presupposition. Um, when we discuss social justice. And and you're right, John, a lot of it's connected to to whether you're a dispensationalist and you have sort of a pessimistic, what we would call a pessimistic outlook. Um, the church is you know, they, they would say the church wins, but we would say, well, not really, because the Great Commission isn't carried out. It's just getting worse and worse. So all that is connected to this idea of being in exile. And I know later on, Jordan, we're going to talk about really the only passage you can find in the New Testament, which speaks of that and correct, hopefully, some errors. So we'll, we'll get to that. There's of course. only one. Yep. There's only one passage. One, uh, one book. One book. And uh, we'll give you a little hint. It's in First Peter. Um, so we'll get to that, but I really want to just spend a minute to lay out some of the Old Testament themes, get us to the gospel. We're going to take a break, go to First Peter, and then we'll come back. I know, John, you have some really good stuff you want to share with um, regard to practical application. I hope so. Yeah, it's going to be good. I mean, it will be. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so we should, we should be optimistic, right? We should. We should be. Yeah. So... When you go back to the Old Testament, here are some of the themes you have. You have creation, right? You have Adam and Eve in the garden. You have sin, and Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They are exiled from the garden. We can use that word. 
Um, you have uh, God restoring covenant, bringing them back through Abraham, you know, Noah and Abraham. So there's this constant pattern that's throughout the entire Bible, creation, fall, redemption, right? And then, and then this beautiful vision of, of restoration. So these themes are, are constant throughout the scriptures. So fast forward to, you know, David was king around 1000 BC. You have Solomon who takes over, builds a temple, right? God's glory fills the temple. That is, um, even Solomon acknowledges that God, who is God that he can dwell in a temple made by human hands? I mean, that that's absurd to even suggest such a thing. But God did dwell with Israel. He, he was in the tabernacle. He was with his people. They were promised a land. Um, they went in, they took the land from the Canaanites. Joshua led the way. And then things sort of went sour after a while. After Solomon, you had the kingdom fall apart. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the kingdom was split. You had constant um, idolatry, rampant idolatry, a rejection of God. Um, Assyria conquers the north in 722. Uh, Babylon comes 150 years later in, in 586, destroys Jerusalem. The temple is raised, right? This whole uh, judgment, frankly, these covenantal sanctions... And, and what happens there? This is a momentous point of Israelite history. Israel is taken captive. Babylon hauls them, uh, Nebuchadnezzar rather, hauls them off to Babylon. Um, and then you have the stories of Daniel, of course, some of the other latter prophets. But I want to I read um, and then sort of talk about this and then bring it back to the gospel, especially the words of Jesus. But Zephaniah chapter 3 is a beautiful picture of what the expectation was. And I'm just going to read that real quick. Zechariah, excuse me, Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives you victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you home, at, that, at the time when I gather you, for I will make your renown and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. So that's Zephaniah. That's a beautiful prophetic picture of what God intends to do to restore the exiles. So we acknowledge that there is a concept of exile, but we need to make sure we're biblical about it. So in the Old Testament, you had literal Jewish people, covenantal people who were sanctioned by God for their disobedience. They were hauled off as, as um, plunder for the king of Babylon, and we know the story in Daniel that you know Nebuchadnezzar is humbled deeply by God. There's kingdom promises about a stone who's going to come and strike at the feet of the statue and grow into a mountain to fill the earth, a picture of Christ's first coming when he establishes the gospel, the good news. In the last days. Yeah, in the last days. And so there's, there's all these promises, and Zephaniah has this beautiful picture of Israel being restored. Whether you're talking about uh, Jeremiah and the new heart, or Ezekiel and the new heart, there's this promise to, to God's people that he's going to crush their enemies, he's going to restore them. Uh, Ezekiel saw the, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, leave the temple. There's going to be a restoration of that. There's going to be a, 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 a moment when the, the Spirit is going to be poured out, like on Sinai, when the law of God was given. We know that to be Pentecost. But um, there's going to also be a moment when, the, when God gives us new hearts. The, the heart of stone is taken out. You have a heart of flesh. And God's going to write his law in our hearts, so that, and, and Ezekiel says, so that we're caused to walk in his ways. So you have all this language, all this, a lot of it's messianic. A lot of it's a, a picture of the suffering servant who's going to come. And, and this, this beautiful picture of, of God restoring Israel to the land, bringing them back from exile, bringing them um, wholeness and fruition, and bring them back to the covenant. So, so you have these pictures. 
And then you fast forward and then you get to, you, you get to Jesus and you get to some of the things he said. And I, and I want to set this all up because for Israel, they were expecting a grand moment of reversal. This grand moment where everything was undone, sin is undone, God's relationship with his people. You know, in Hosea, there's this divorce language. God, and, and in Jeremiah, too, God's going to fix that. He's going to bring them back. Um, there's going to be this new exodus. And, and one thing that N.T. Wright does really well, I think, is articulate this motif from the New Testament where we have a restoration from exile. We have this beautiful picture of the gospel, and it brings all of those themes together, if we yes. would only listen. So, so let me just set this up, too, and then we'll, we'll banter back and forth. Luke 4, you have a picture of Jesus. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said this. This is crazy. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's bold. That's a bold <laughs> move, Cotton. <laughs> like, all spoke well of him it and were amazed. It definitely paid off for him. It did. At the gracious words that came from his mouth, they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do you do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in, in Capernaum? Like, do a miracle, right? And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in, this time, in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them. Listen to this. This is huge. Elijah was sent to none of them, the Israelites, except to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman, mm. the Syrian. Mm. When they heard all this, this is the key, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Yep. Uh-oh. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The question before us is this, why did they get so angry? Well, there were promises attached to Israel, things that were going to go well for them. God was going to crush their enemies. And here Jesus is basically flipping on its head and, on its head and saying, look, I'm here to judge you as You're well. You're it. You're it. Wow. Elijah and Elisha went to not the covenant people, but outside the covenant. That's why they wanted to hurl Jesus off a cliff. He was coming to them saying, look, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm anointed by God. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to release the captives. I'm going to release the prisoners. I'm going to do all these things. And of course, he quotes Isaiah 61, but he leaves out one of the harder passages, one of the sections where um, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The days of vengeance. <laughs> he came to judge them and they weren't happy. So what's the exile look like? Well, it's not a restoration to the physical land of Israel. It's not what they assumed. It was something bigger than that. It was the kingdom of God. Amen. Yes. And that judgment does come yeah. to God's enemies. And at that point, it was the Jews. It was Jerusalem. And it was the it wasn't the it was the remnant who was saved, both in in Elijah's time and in the time of Christ. It was the greater uh, broader swath of the people who were judged. Hence, it parallels so great when Jesus is saying, uh, "Wide is the path to destruction, um, and narrow yeah. is the is the path to life." I'm paraphrasing, but few find it, and few did find it. Yeah, right, and, exactly. And that's not that passage is not about all time. Not about all time. <laughs> that was about because if you keep reading, yes. he talks about the floodgates being opened and the multitudes pouring in. Yep. Right. And all of this is based on what? Covenantal yes. faithfulness. Yep. Not where you come from, not what town you're from, not who your parents are, not what color your skin is. 
covenantal faithfulness. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing that Jesus's contemporaries completely misunderstood the covenant. You had people from all walks of life. Joshua himself wasn't a descendant of Abraham. He's in the covenant. He's leading the Israelites into the land. And Jesus is the new Joshua. So he's doing the yes. same thing. So all of this, when, when we talk about exile theology, I really, I just wanted to sort of give the background to that. We're going to define it and, and unpack it some more. But I wanted to make sure that we have these, these themes in place because Jesus himself sees his actions and his words and his yeah. teachings as bringing that all to a head. I really love how you pointed out how it's amazing to see God's sovereignty in all of this, how he ordained that the exile where the people of God are sent all around the world, all every nation under heaven, basically, throughout all the Persian, Assyrian Empire, throughout the Babylonian Empire. Uh, there's Christians, well, not Christians, there's, there is the uh, dispersion of the Israelites everywhere. And so when Pentecost happens in the New Testament, how do you think word got out so quickly to every nation, as it says in Colossians, under heaven, mm -hmm. to where the gospel did go out at that time to every nation under heaven? Uh, it was because God in his sovereignty used that dispersion so that there would be networks of Israelites to be able to go and the, and the word would not just travel to the remnant of Israel and, and to the lost 10 tribes of, of Israel. See, the, the Israelites in the Old Covenant, they were thinking that the New Covenant was only all about them and about reunifying the 10 tribes of, of Israel and the, the two tribes of Judah mm -hmm. and reunifying that into a single kingdom. But what it was really all about was bringing all the nations together to secure the original promises that were given to Christ in Genesis 49.10, where the obedience of the nations would be brought to him. And the way that was done was by using this, this exile and this dispersion to turn it into this beautiful Great Commission success. Right. What the world meant for evil, God meant for good. Yes. Yeah. Amen. And a lot of times we get these, because there's such this, this, imposed on the text gap, we'll call it, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just, you know, the question of land, you, you brought up the, like the land of Israel. Yes, there was a view of that being restored, this, you know, getting back to David's borders when they were at their best, you know, which didn't have a wall, but that's for a different discussion. Uh, <laughs> but there was all these expectations. And you, there are several hints throughout the Old Testament where God's, he fulfilled that. At the end of Joshua, it speaks of, yeah, they were all in the land. It was great. God fulfilled his promises. Not one promise was left unfulfilled. So that's already in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New, and suddenly Jesus talks about blessed, blessed are, the, are the meek. Why? Because they're going to inherit the earth. Yes. They're going to inherit the land. And inherit what? The earth, the what? entire world, the cosmos. And if I may, one more verse. Romans 9, you know, we think about it as the like predestination. Um, it's the Calvinist chapter. Right, it's the Calvinist chapter. But, <laughs> and it is, right? It's, it's our but, chapter. They're all Calvinist chapters. <laughs> <laughs> but listen to this. This is, uh, this is Paul, and he's quoting from the book of Hosea, as you referenced, Jason, right. in the build-up to this. He says, um, he's talking about the reconciliation of the divorced ten tribes um, in the blessing of the new covenant. It says, verse 24, 924, Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the nations, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Amen. Oh, yeah. About to tear up here, fellas. Yeah. Move on. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and take a break, I think. We got we gotta, a lot more to cover, this whole concept of exile theology. Um, we set it up. We're going to define it a little bit more, too, and then unpack it some more. But anyway, um, check us out on Facebook. You can see uh, a lot of our contents there, Cross and Crown Radio. You can follow us there. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be right back. For seeing the Father's cup of wrath that has him stifled and weak. He's sweating blood with his disciples asleep. The Prince of Peace knows the beach shall increase since the thief approaches with the soldiers and the chief priests. His arrest is not just. Neither is the trial. While Jesus being treated foul, he sees Peter's denial. He sent to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate. The violence of humanity at its finest. So now he stands before the crowd, doomed to die. An angry mob who's yelling out.
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in your way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Amen. Good deal. Welcome back to Crossing Crown Radio. That is Psalm chapter 2, and that is a beautiful passage, and I'll tell you why. It exalts Christ. He is king. We say that a lot, right? Jesus is king. We mean that he's king. The New Testament spends a lot of time expounding on that passage, explaining Mm -hmm. things like Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension means that he does have the nations. They're in his possession. So um, real quick, just a reminder, you can you can go to the Cross and Crown uh, store, grab a coffee mug if you'd like. You can grab some of those things. A discount code is CC Store Launch, 10% off there. So exile theology, what do we mean by that? Really, exile theology is this idea that the world is not our home, right? The world's not our home. We're just sort of here and we're we're holding down the fort because yeah. things are bad and we just got to you know, hang tight, um, those types of things. I don't know. Maybe you have a... Yeah, we've, we, you've got the embassy. We're manning the embassy in this Babylonian world and we're just holding the fort down and, and we've got the promise that we'll always be here. We'll always have this little assembly here or assem- uh, what did I say? <laughs> assembly? It's not assembly. Embassy. 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 That's okay. the word. Assembly, embassy. Yes. Kind of an embassy assembly. <laughs> Always have this little embassy here. Yeah. And, you know, really, what do we have? We have a garrison. We are a, we are launching out an all-out assault through this whole age on the defunct, illegitimate kingdom of Satan. Right. That is no more, has any right to authority. When we just read that passage, that was about the time we live in now. And as you said, Jason... Christ does have all authority, and that's not just some like tangential thing. Like he literally has legal authority over this nation, over this town, over this county. Like it's real. He really does. And the rulers of this nation and every other nation already are obligated to obey him. The ruler of Saudi Arabia right now, in a sense, Saudi Arabia is already a Christian country. It's just they've not yet been footstooled. They've yeah. not yet been discipled. Jesus they already are obligated to obey Christ because Christ has legal authority over Saudi Arabia now. Right. Yeah. Isaiah talks about uh, God. The Lord is our lawgiver. He, Jesus Christ has full legislative, executive, and judicial authority over, over all things, over America. So I, I want to read, really to kick this discussion off and, and at least delve in further before we get into First Peter, I, I found this quote. Um, it's from the Gospel Coalition, and the title of his title is Our Mission in Exile, and Trevin Wax, uh, I think he's a Southern Baptist guy, I don't know a ton about him, but he posted a, a, a quote from a book. The book was called Joy for the World, and it was by Greg Forster. I think he wrote the book The Joy of Calvinism, if I'm not mistaken, which I thought was actually somewhat decent. Anyway, so here's the quote, and I want to illustrate this exile theology because for us, we want to make sure we're we're up front. This is not a straw man. This is a huge doctrine that is taught. Whether you're a two kingdoms guy, dispensationalist, a lot of these, you know, a lot of folks are teaching this. And this book, 
according to Wax, is an excellent book. But here's the quote. Forster says, Exile is our permanent state in the New Testament church because we have now been commissioned, sent on a mission to the nations. Jeremiah sent the Israelites out to a long period of exile in Babylon, but they were always looking forward to the promised return. Jesus sent the church out to permanent exile everywhere. The church's new mission reorients the exilic challenge. The New Testament church is not a cultural lifeboat for a specific civilization, as the Israelites in exile were. In Babylon, God's people were not keeping alive just God's message and ways, but the remnant of a whole foreign civilization, temporarily sustaining it as best they could until it was time to return and replant replant it in its native soil. For us, however, there will be no return and no replanting until the world ends. We must keep alive God's message and ways, but we cannot think of ourselves as a separate civilization. <laughs> My goodness. I, 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 almost, I almost got through it. Because the church has a mission within every human civilization, we must build godly lives within our home civilization rather than trying to cultivate a separate one. It's getting incoherent, frankly. Let's continue. That means working hard to contribute to the well-being and flourishing of our civilization. Otherwise, we're not loving our neighbors. However, because the church is in exile, we cannot simply identify the church with our host civilization. We cannot reduce the church's work merely to to the flourishing of civilization. The church still has to sustain a zone of cultural activity that represents revelation and Holy Spirit transformation. Inevitably, this will mean resisting the dominant culture in some ways. Maintaining balance between mission and exile is one of the central challenges of sustaining the church's identity, end quote. Well, first of all, this is confusing. <laughs> yes, it is. Like we, no, we don't want an alternative civilization, but we also don't want to be identifying with the civilization. I'm not sure how you do both. Um, anyway, it, it's Non-sequitur is all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Let's begin with the... First sentence, exiles are permanent state in the New Testament church because we have now been commissioned, sent on a mission to the nations. What? Well, that's a because statement, but how does the one how does the first part of that sentence actually because the second part of that statement? Um, not to mention how, how does one get sent on a mission while also being an exile? This was those seem to me at least to be contradictory ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really follow. I, you know, reading that the second time around now, <laughs> just sort of, I um, feel like the reader's confused. If you don't know anything about this topic, I think you're going to read this and think, wait a minute, what? It's confusing. Well, sounds the, pro- maybe the prophets good. were sent on a mission to people in exile. They were sent to pronounce judgment on the people who were in exile. Right. But the mission wasn't exile. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) There you go. And that's why exile is a theological category of judgment. There is no place in scripture where theology is not a category of judgment. Right. And so he's saying the author, Greg Forster, and again, this is quoted by Trevin Wax of uh, the gospel coalition that the church is in permanent exile. Yeah. Which theologically means that the church is in permanent exile. Judgment. Now, is that biblically true? I don't think so at all, actually. Israel didn't go to Babylon for a vacation. <laughs> right. I mean, th- that's not... And he kind of glosses over that. Like, Jeremiah sent the Israelites out to Babylon. Well, yeah, because of judgment. Mm-hmm. And it's just the confusing thing about the civilization aspect. When you think of civilization you know, connected to civilian and citizenship and those types of concepts, the church, according to Peter, he's quite clear... That we are a holy nation, like we are a nation. The church is a nation of people that infiltrates the nations that already belong to Christ. And that's the key. We infiltrate and we take over, not by killing people, but by the sword of the spirit, by the great commission. This nation doesn't just stay a separate nation. We infiltrate everything. That's the great commission. And I'm sympathetic with what he was trying to say with regard to you know, we we have godly homes within our home civilization because we live in America and we readily acknowledge that America has been hijacked by the humanists. <laughs> so we don't want that. We don't want that at all. But this, we are a civilization, a holy nation, a holy priesthood that is then sent in to the, that civilization to transform it Lebanon through the gospel. To transform it. Right. Yes. right. There is a lot of good ideas 
in this, the sense that you do want to remain separate to a degree uh, while keeping your home holy, like you were saying, uh, Pastor Garwood. But then you get these kind of odd extra biblical ideas, like what is a zone of cultural activity? <laughs> like, yeah. Like what? what is that? And it's because it's, I, I feel like there's this tension here where he's not able to be clear because he, he's trying to steer away from theonomy. He's trying to steer away from um, a, a, a theology that is actually opposed to like the, his exile theology, right? A, a theology that it has the world as our home, as Christ, as Christ ruling here, like he rules in heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, so Jordan, we need to talk about then the new Testament. Cause he brings that up. What in the world does the new Testament say about the exile? Because according to him, it's a permanent thing in the new Testament. It must be right. everywhere. Right. Well, I, to me, the, the exegesis is very straightforward on this, and you'll notice that when people start talking about the churches in exile, the exegesis is usually pretty light. Um, but just to back up from like our historical context, so you want to go back to like Augustine uh, in those days where the Roman Empire was crumbling, and theologians frequently really embrace or tend to look at their, their theology of exile when a, uh, a certain formerly Christian, formerly successful nation is now crumbling. Oh, what do we do as Christians? How do we make sense of this? And what Augustine did is he talked about two cities. And the two cities were competing religions. They were not just uh, you know, a divided kingdom of Christ. There were, there were two separate religions. There was the city that represented paganism and the city that represented Christianity. Christian civilization versus pagan civilization. And one was to take over the other. So from the beginning, this, this theology uh, of exile theology is actually newer. Um, if, you, like, if you think of like Christmas songs like uh, O Come, Come, Emmanuel, we don't even think about it. But remember the words, it's O Come, Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that, moans in lo- that mourns in lonely exile here mm-hmm. until when? Until the second Sunday. coming? Nope. Until the Son of God appear, mm-hmm. referring to his incarnation, right? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to the Israel. That's where they were longing for. All of the Old Testament saints were longing for this release from exile. And this, there is no eschatological exile that continues in the new covenant. There's physical exiles, people who are uh, in, uh, you know, away from their homes for, through war or, or famine or what have you, and they can't get back to where their physical home is. But there's no spiritual exile for the church now. There just isn't. So let's get into this. A little bit, a little bit more, um, and look at what the text actually has to say. Okay, and in First Peter, and would you mind opening up First Peter for me? And sure. You can, and you can read this for me. But the word exile in the whole Bible is only used of New Testament Christians three times. It's used of Old Testament Christians several times. But in the New Testament, there's only three times it's used of New Testament Christians, and it's only in one book, okay? And that book is 1 Peter. And so in 1 Peter, like many other books of the Bible, there's a introduction. And in that introduction, the author of the book is saying who this book is being, who this letter is being written to. And so, for instance, you know, in Romans, it says to those in Rome... Am I a Roman? No. Uh, in Corinthians, it says to the church in Corinth. I'm mm-hmm. not a Corinthian. Uh, you know, Galatia to those who are at Philippi to the faithful brothers in Colossae, the Thessalonians in James to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Revelation to the seven churches who are in Asia, and then in Peter, what does it say? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles. There's our word of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect exiles, right? Yeah. To those who are the elect exiles, does it say elect exiles? You said, I'm using yeah, it, it, NRSV. And, so, and it, ESV so it doesn't even says, have it. Uh, ESV says elect. So there's a bit of a translational hiccup here. But in any case, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, it doesn't just say to the elect exiles. It says to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these are, uh, this is the dispersion, right? And as a result of various exiles that had happened as a result of the exile to Persian Assyria, the exile to uh, Babylon, you have Christians all over the world, all over in every nation under the Roman Empire in those days, and, or 
Jews and you know Israelites in those in those countries. So when the apostles are addressing these letters, they're addressing actual physical exiles uh, who did not uh, live in Jerusalem, right? Who did not live in the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to the people of Israel. They were chosen and destined by God. I think that my translation just moves it, the, the Greek later. But they've been chosen, they're elect, they're covenantal people, right? Right. So we're talking about covenantal people that Jesus died for. Right. Right, absolutely. I just, I just looked it up. You're right, it is later in the, in the actual Greek, but eklektos is absolutely there. Right, exactly. And so that... That should be very. That should be shouting to you that this is. We're talking about physical exiles, okay? And elsewhere in in First Peter, it talks about it almost incidentally. It mentioned during the time of your exile, which is literally they were exiles, right? During and um, in those days, wasn't talking about a permanent eschatological spiritual consignment for those people. So just like we shouldn't all identify as Romans because the book of Romans was written to Romans, right. we shouldn't all identify as exiles because the book of First Peter was written to exiles. Right. Though they were both written to the whole church right. at the same time. Right. But yes, thank you for making that distinction. And so now let's look at what the new how the New Testament treats those who are said to be exiles in the old covenant. All right. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 16. And what does it say there? Quote, these all, in referring to Abraham and the, the patriarchs, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And remember this longing for this in this lonely exile that we're here and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Mm-hmm. Abraham, right? For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Mm -hmm. All right? Now, what is that city? What are these exiles who are longing to go to this homeland in this city where are they longing to go? What is the exile pointing to? Well, if you, that, uh, the author of Hebrews answers it directly if you continue on to chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. This brings me to our Just Keep Reading hermeneutic. Exactly. That we talked about in episode one, I believe. Just we, Keep Reading. I think we mentioned it in every single episode. Just Keep Reading. <laughs> so the author of Hebrews makes the contrast. He says, but you, unlike Abraham and those, but you, here in the New Covenant, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, this is the new covenant, Mm -hmm. right? The mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So if you're calling us now in the new covenant exiles, you are in disagreement with this passage here, which is contrasting spiritual exiles from us here in the New Covenant. You cannot do it. Just from this passage alone. There are right. other passages. It's over. from this To have an eschatological exile motif as a spiritual category and not a physical one is totally obliterated by this right here. Absolutely. And you just look at it from a, a very big picture point of view. The cross changes Everything, amen. Mm-hmm. Not just the spiritual and leaves the kind of the physical aside, and that we're not going to separate it into this dualistic Gnostic sort of mysticism. It changes everything. That's the that's the question I want to ask: is what is the gospel of the kingdom if it's not the ending of our exile from the garden, if it's not a restoration of our covenant standing before God? What in what in the world is the sufficiency of the cross and an empty tomb if it's not? Jesus making all things new. Yeah, the resurrection of Christ at ended the exile. It's over. The ascension of, of Christ when he inherited all authority, when he was given the nations to him, and then we share in his inheritance, right? We are the ones who are going through the Holy Spirit to secure the obedience of the nations with the church, right? That is the program that's going on right now. We're in exile. We are invading the land of Canaan, right? Yeah. We're at the edge of, of the... We're crossing the stormy banks of Jordan, right? Yeah. We're not going off to... Floaty land, we've got a job to do while we're here on earth, right? <laughs> and land. as we're and as we're cross getting ready to cross the stormy banks with... of the Jordan, we should be girding up our loins for battle. Again, sort of the spirit, right? We're not talking about killing anyone. <laughs> but we should be slaughtering Disclaimer. Canaanites. 
Okay. Yeah. And not obviously physical Canaanites, but we should be going with the gospel and taking over the land, which is the whole world, by the way, as it says in Romans four. Yeah. Well, you brought up Daniel seven. The son of man came to the ancient of days and to him was given a kingdom, right? Dominion, Mm -hmm. an everlasting um, kingdom. And then the very next verse is, well, why does he have that? Well, so that all nations and languages can serve him. Yes. That's the whole point of it. If, if Jesus bought the planet with his blood, mm-hmm. I mean, that's why he didn't give in to the devil's temptation. The devil promised him all the kingdoms of the world. Right. And if you back up a couple chapters in Hebrews 10, 12 through 13, this is what Christ is. He's seated on the throne. He's waiting at the right hand of the Father in all power. And what's he waiting for? He's waiting for the nations to be footstooled. Mm-hmm. And so he's not getting up, the, up off the throne to hand the completed kingdom over the Father, over to the Father until that work is completed. And that's what's going on in the Great Commission right now. So hold on. Who's waiting then? Because we're supposed to wait. Exactly. Right? We're, this... Christ is waiting. Ah, yes. there is a difference. Yes. Christ is waiting. <laughs> and, he's, and he said, it's to your advantage that I go, uh-huh. right? Because I, if I don't go, the helper will not arrive. And he's going to, I can be with you physically one person. But when I send the spirit, it's going to be poured out on everyone. Yeah. Right? Which means... We probably don't need to sit in the corner and whine about how bad things have gotten and wait for Jesus to intervene. Yes. Because he's not going to. Yeah. I'm not of, not like in a physical return. No, no. He's, I'm thinking of a Rush Dooney quote right now that's escaping me, but like <laughs> leave it to fools and and some and something like that to wonder about, you know, the last days, you know, conflagration stuff. We're in the young day young days of Christ's new creation. Walk in the freedom of that. You know, yeah. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but like there is tremendous freedom and hope in, in this in this sin-sick world that still has all sorts of pain, death, disease, hardships, relational struggles. But our hope is in Christ. How are, how are you doing, Jason? How are you doing today? Well, the reality is you're, you're doing amazing because Christ is king and everything else falls into place. Right. You know? Yeah. And the, the question I want to ask then is, is... What are we assuming about the world if, if we hold to this exile theology? What are we assuming? Well, we're assuming that Satan owns the place. And do that's you, what they say. Do you say. guys think that? Do you think that Satan owns the earth? Short answer, no. Long answer, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he's the god of this world, right? As well, Second if you're ever going to... Exactly. 4-4. Four, four, yeah. Is the god of this age. Age world. Yeah. It's a different word. Kind of fudging words a little bit there. A little bit. Whenever you're talking about exile, really... You have to answer the question, exile from what? Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes back to like old school, historic reformed theology. All of the confessions that I remember, at least right now, at least the Westminster and the Belgic, they talk about a final judgment, final resurrection, and the world being populated again. Mm-hmm. Not just floating around like naked babies with little wings on, on clouds, mm-hmm. right. but the world is our home. We're not in exile. We're where we need to be, and we're building the kingdom of God now. And I think oftentimes the, the problem is that people are short-sighted. They see what's in front of them, and they don't look forward. Mm-hmm. And they see what's going on in the world. They see abortion, homosexuality. They, say, they see transgenderism. They see socialism. And they think we must be in exile because the, look how bad the world is. Right. They're looking at the newspaper clippings, basically. So we assume the world that Christians are going to lose. We assume that Jesus gave the Great Commission you know, to, to go to the ends of the earth. That, that was just wishful thinking. He didn't really expect that to happen. And, and Exactly. Hebrews 2, when you talk about Satan being the god of this world... Um, it describes the dynamic where, although Christ is in authority overall, we do not yet see all things acting in obedience to him. So there is that dynamic going on. Um, but this is further uh, biblical precedence for the notion that what appears to be the case does not always reflect what actually is the case. And in this instance, though Satan does appear in, the, in, in what's described in Scripture to have rule, he doesn't really possess legitimate authority. And we, we've got to recognize the covenantal era in which the New Testament was written again, an era in which Jerusalem had been overrun by the synagogue of Satan, where apostate Israel was opposing the church at every turn, having you know murdered Christ, the son of man, right? And so it looked like Satan had a lot of, of power. And it's an era where they said uh, in, in Hebrews 8, the old, had, old covenant had not yet fully vanished, right? So there's that aspect. Um, but Christ had prophesied that, all the righteous blood of the prophets of the men of the faith since Abel would be accounted for in this generation. Yeah, Matthew 23. Exactly. And the judgment 
that judgment would be a decisive blow to Satan's efforts. Um, and that hadn't yet occurred yet in the time of the writing of the Bible. So that was all coming, this, the event that would soon crush Satan, soon crush Satan. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes right? uh, posited as some sort of proof text that can you know, prove Christianity wrong by yeah. those atheists. Right. But yeah, may, maybe the pre-mill guys, but... Right, exactly. <laughs> and so Satan's rule and his kingdom is never described as a prescription for what should be the case throughout this whole age. It's a, It's a description of what is the case. It's a problem to be fixed. Anytime it's Satan's the God of this world. Yeah, it's a problem to be fixed by the Great Commission. Yeah. And that's, again, that's not even a good translation of 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Yeah. It's the God of this age. This Aeon. age, it's, yes. It's not cosmos there. And you brought up Hebrews too, that through Jesus' death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that mm. is the devil. Mm. The devil, by and large, through the old covenant age, had a, a covenantal uh, apostasy, you know, um, kingdom, if you will. Right. And Jesus came to take it back. Right. That's why he was offering it to Christ like he could offer it to him. Yeah. He, he probably literally, he thought, you know, maybe he could actually give him something, but he really didn't yeah. have the ownership to give it right. to him anyway. Jesus came to buy it with his blood. Amen. So, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, go ahead. Jordan. Yeah. Just another point on the exile, because we, we talked about the Hebrews passage, which sort of drove home. Yeah, this is a contrast. There's no spiritual exile continuing. Another one, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is the same thing as exile. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Um, How much more clear can you can get be there, there? Really? Now, I want to... Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I think part of the problem is that Christians think they're in exile. Right. When they think they're in exile, that will greatly affect There was how a meme recently, remember? It was like the whole church had been saying, you know, we're in exile and the Great Commission is not going to, you know, take over society. It's not meant to take over the culture. And then we look around. So, we, so the church leaves the culture and then we turn around and look, look how bad everything is. Yeah, right, know? exactly. So, so we, we see this in society where, you know, like I was mentioning before, we see this kind of steady march of liberal progressiveness progressivism and we look at what's going on we look at the last 50 years and i think any honest observer would say it looks like the progressives are winning mm-hmm. we can look at the statistics and we we still see maybe 50 percent republican 50 percent democrat as if that's really a you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> the real paradigm um yeah but we see that progressivism is is winning and, and christians ask why and mm-hmm. i think a lot of it is that we are created in the image of God, and part of being created in the image of God is being given that dominion mandate. Yes. And that's why it's like right next to each other, Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28, it is God creating us in his image mm-hmm. and then giving us the dominion mandate in the very next verse as if it's actually connected. <laughs> so what I'm saying is like we are created in the image of God, and part of being created in his image is being a builder, being yeah. a worker. Mm-hmm. And right now, in our current political sort of environment, the progressive liberals are building towards something. They have a goal of overtaking society. They have a goal of total tyranny and socialism and pagan idolatry. They have a goal of absolute subjectivity of truth and downright satanic theologies. But they have a goal. And they are building towards that goal mm-hmm. while conservatives are defensive and reactionary. Yes. Yeah. I, I used this in a sermon last year, basically that we've been given a job to do. We've been given a job to tend this garden and we have gone over to the tomato patch and we've ignored the rest of the, the garden. We've said that's not part of our mission. And we've gone over to the church and the tomato patch, and we're really manicuring this tomato patch. We're all about this tomato patch. Meanwhile, <laughs> right. the weeds are just going all over the place, going crazy. It's just, you know, complete mess. And then we, we look at the rest of the garden. We say, see, this is how it was supposed to be. This is, what, this is you know, because we're in exile. No, you've been negligent in your duties. The church has not seen 
its role as to transform all areas of life. And so this is what we have. Right, exactly. And this is kind of a just an interesting little funny point. The book that we were quoting in the first half by Forster has this kind of leave it to be their 1950s sort of picture on the front of it. And it's probably not intentional, but I, I do think it is funny because oftentimes uh, our modern Christianity is very much like we want to go back to the good old days. You know, and the good old days to them might be the 1950s, leave it to beaver. And to other people, it might be, you know, colonial Massachusetts. And to some other people, it might be like 1646 Scotland that yeah, they could exactly. hang out with John Knox and pretend to be covenanters. Yes. And that was the <laughs> penultimate of all of Christian right, history. Exactly. That's yeah. the peak right yeah. there is, you know, whenever the Westminster Confession was written, everything mm-hmm. is downhill from here. Right. But no, <laughs> no, like. We're not in exile, but if we're going to continue to be in exile temporarily, only culturally speaking from that perspective, if we continue to act like it. Right. But if we actually embrace the image of God and that dominion mandate, we will actually see progress. Yeah. And the people who are proponents of this whole thing, the reality is it's a self-induced exile. It's not a real theological covenantal exile. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the issue. It's this defeatism that has ruled the church for so long that you're, yeah. we don't care about the other part of the garden. Well, it's like locking themselves in the room and saying, I'm in exile. Yeah. It's like, no, you just unlock the meme. door and walk That's out. That's a meme. <laughs> <laughs> What's that one with the kid with the boot on his foot? I'm in exile. And then oh, you look away yeah, and someone, yeah. he's just putting it on himself. His own. Yeah. But I, I will say, you know, there's a sense in which we can talk about worldliness or fleshliness uh, as things that we should be sort of strangers to, exiles to, if you want to talk about it in that sense. Like, right. it, it, like, we should be very far away from worldliness, which means immorality, right? Um, not... But Christ, we have to remember, he did not pray that we would be uh, taken out of this world. He kept that we would be kept. He prayed that we would be kept from evil. Right. And so, you know, if you're saying this, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Don't say that anymore. (laughs) You know, it's not true. This world belongs to your savior. He died to inherit it. This world belongs to Christ and everyone else who's not in Christ are the ones who are just passing through. Yeah. Right. So we need to have a reorientation of our whole perspective. There's a very important theological reason when Jesus Christ was resurrected that he was flesh and blood, not just a spirit. Yes. Yeah. Amen. And he healed real people's wounds and, and, and sight, gave sight to the blind. And he also does it spiritually and he does it physically. Mm-hmm. It's both. That's the vastness of the kingdom of God. Amen. So all that to say, basically, uh, with Luke 4 being referenced earlier, Jesus does intend to set the captives free. He does intend to restore justice. Amen. And it is to, to um, roll down. It is to be uh, a beautiful picture of what it means to be in the kingdom. And that means we need to stop pretending that it's not true and stop shooting ourselves in the foot, get past this exile theology, this false exile theology, and start, move, start moving into something more beautiful like the kingdom. That's why we say no exile around here. No exile, no surrender. Now you know. Jesus is king. <laughs> if you didn't know already. Yeah. Well, hey, we're uh, about to wrap it up here. Good stuff, guys. Yeah. Oh, thanks, doctor. I liked it. It was good. Well, hey, Jesus is king. Amen. That's it for us. You can check us out on Facebook. You can visit us at Cross and Crown Radio. Thank you once again for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Tell me why do the heathen nations rage? themselves upon his stay. Oh, tell me.